Cliff Readers is on board. Of course, uh, you folks may know him. Uh, I just think he's just a super advocate for a wide range of topics and safety and civil suits. And a lot of big changes have happened in the state and probably around the world because of his work. Founding partner of Readers, Travis Humphrey, Waters and Dorman, and uh, Pennsylvania Trial Lawyers Association, past president, and just a super expert on a wide range of topics. When can I stop, Cliff? <laughs> you got a long you resume. Stop. You can stop. You can stop. My, my mother would be proud. Thanks. Right. She was happy at the second. By the time you got to the second page of your resume, she was she was so proud. All right. Well, we appreciate your calling in. Yeah, glad uh, to hear from you, Cliff. Yeah. Same here. Good U- talk to you. U.S. Supreme Court leak is on our mind. Let's. Uh, we'll do the leak in a moment. Let's start at the beginning. Uh, Justice Alito says that Roe v. Wade was an egregious decision to start with. Uh, your view on the relative egregiousness of uh, that decision back from, in, from a legal standpoint. So, you, know, you know, the big debate uh, when you go to law school, the big debate is always whether the Constitution, you know, a document from 1789, whether the Constitution is uh, a living organ, uh, or organic document that's supposed to change with the times, and of course, who defines the times, what defines the times, of course, is, you know, who's on the court, or whether it's a document that is, you know, it says what it is and, and says what it means and means what it says. And if you don't like it, you amend it. And there have been 27 amendments. And there have been uh, something like 33 that have actually made it to the amendment process, but 27 have passed. So, you know, the real issue here is, is a philosophical issue. What is your view as to what the role of the Constitution is? Now, if your role is, look, it, it, you know, you don't uh, rewrite it by court decision, you only rewrite it by amendment, it's very, it's very hard to justify Roe versus Wade and a lot of other uh, opinions that um, clearly were, you, you know, you can't find in the Constitution. You don't find the right to abortion in the Constitution. You find equal protection, you find due process, you find maybe some so-called penumbral rights, rights of association that flow from the First Amendment, from the amendment dealing with speech and, and press and that sort of thing. But how do you get uh, the right to abort from that? Um, so it, is, it really was a stretch at the time. Egregious, well, you know, that, I'm not going to use that kind of terminology because now you're getting into sort of the political field. But I want to just talk about the law. If you just look at the law, it is very hard to find the right to abort in the Constitution. And at the time that Roe v. Wade, if you go back and reread the decision, the justices themselves, you know, pretty much admitted that they can't find it in the Constitution, but they find in, in kind of the general philosophy of the way America has developed under this Constitution that there was a right to um, abort prior to uh, the, uh, the fetus being viable. So um, that's really what Roe versus Wade was about. It was a sociological, philosophical decision based upon the development, um, and it, it was decided during a time when you know we were fully into guaranteeing civil rights. Co- Congress had passed um, Title VII, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, and you know we were about expanding and ensuring, maybe is a better word, those those kind of individual rights and liberties. Um, that's where Roe versus Wade comes from, not from anything in the Constitution. So those who say, show, show me where it's in the Constitution or anything even like the right to abortion in the Constitution, you're not going to find it um, unless you believe that it is an organic, growing document that can be changed by the courts. If you believe, as many other people do, that, that is, uh, you know, that's just a bridge too far, that if you, really, if you don't like the stuff in the Constitution, have a constitutional convention, rewrite the Constitution, or amend it, as, as I say, as we've done 27 times. 
So it, is, it really is your philosophy is what this is all about. But the right to privacy is in there, and a woman's right to conduct... Where? And, and where? Where's where the right it? to privacy in it? there? Well, Tell I me think where the right to privacy is in the Constitution. No, is that there. not within the due process section where you, you cannot have government to, uh, undo searches and seizures, whatever it happens to be? You know, I, I don't remember which which is which from Roe v. Uh, Wade, okay, uh, but privacy well, was you. a factor. I'll tell you where it is. So, first of all, Roe v. Wade doesn't mention the Fourth Amendment. So the Fourth Amendment deals with unreasonable searches and seizures. That's a right to privacy in your home, okay? And even when, they, when cars came on the scene, the court had to kind of struggle with that applied to cars. And they have a different standard with respect to cars than they do with respect to homes. Because homes are mentioned in the Fourth Amendment, cars are not. Um, so if you, if you think that the right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures without a warrant in your home extends to the right to abort a fetus, boy, I, I think that's a leap. I mean, just logically, forget again, put aside your philosophy for a minute. I mean, it is certainly a leap in terms of interpretation, um, whether you believe it, it's it, uh, a right to abort is a good idea or not. You know, finding it in the Fourth Amendment, the right to be secure in your home from unreasonable searches and seizures, leaping from that to the right to abort, boy, I, I, don't, I don't see it, you know. I mean, I don't see that leap, that's for sure. And if you want to talk about other rights of, of privacy, again, you have, there's a right to free, to, to free speech, there's a right to free press, there's a right to, to religious liberty. Um, I don't know, again, how you get from those, how you leap from those, to the right to abort a fetus, and again, you got you have to talk about Roe versus Wade. You know, people forget this all the time. Talks about three trimesters, right? So clearly, the court says in the third trimester you can regulate it, you can ban it. So we're really only talking about the first and the second trimester. Now, in the first one, uh, the fetus is not viable, but it's certainly capable of becoming an infant. In the second trimester, of course, the medicine has changed. Uh, my, my, I have a first cousin who's a neonatologist in New York City. And, uh, you know, they're, they're making incredible strides in terms of the ability to deliver, you know, to save babies who are delivered early. Um, so even, even that has changed since Roe. It is, it is, uh, there's now more science behind the ability to uh, deliver a baby earlier and save that baby's life. So, again, uh, you, don't, you will not find the whole notion of a right to privacy um, is something that has evolved um, from the Constitution, but it's not explicitly found there. And uh, the next question you have to ask is whether the right to abort um, something within your body that's capable, that either is uh, a child or capable of becoming a child, whether that implicates a right to, to freedom uh, or a right to association. And again, you can start talking about the fetus's rights. You know, we may look back on this in 20 years, 50 years, and say, gosh, we you know, can't believe that we were ignoring the rights of the fetus. You know, so there's that argument to be made also, and it seems to me you can almost argue that if you want to argue with the Constitution. Cliff, you can they, argue that as well as you could anything else. Cliff, does, does the fetus have any legal rights, and at what point does it get them? It's a very interesting case, uh, the Hudak case. It actually was decided by my former partner who went on the court, Clinton Smith, now deceased. And uh, the Hudak case said that a, uh, that a, a child inside the mother's womb would have the right to bring a wrongful death and survival action if it was killed in an auto accident. You know, there are people, there are women, pregnant women, who get involved in the auto accidents. The baby is killed. Does the baby have an independent right to bring a case? And the courts have said yes, so long as the baby is viable. And again, we're pushing back the time of viability more and more. 
Um, supposing the child is not viable, but in two weeks could become viable, or a month could become viable, should that fetus have the right to bring a wrongful death and survival action because he or she may have, he or she would have um, evolved into a human being at some point? So you know, again, those are unanswered questions. But, but uh, you know, again, I'm trying to sort of step back from the political, right. and I'm trying to look at the documents written. You know, as lawyers, look, we look at documents all the time. Okay, I mean, I've done you know, all kinds of contractual disputes, all kinds of stuff like that. We read contracts, and you know, we try to make sense of them. What's really, what really can be found in this document, and what do we, you know, what is a stretch? <clears throat> what are we kind of making up to fit the the the, the narrative? <clears throat> and again, to try to to find to say you can find abortion in the in the current constitution is absolutely a stretch. Now, if you say to me. If you say, I would say you were principled if you said to me, you know, because I don't care about that anyway. I believe the Constitution should evolve, and I think the courts are the ones that should evolve it. If, if you tell me that, I would say, oh, well, okay, that's an argument. Um, it's a, to me, it's a slippery slope. It's a potentially dangerous argument. But you know what? That's an argument. You're being honest with me. But if you say to me, or if somebody says to me, oh, it's there. The right to abort is there in the Constitution. Well, that's malarkey. It just isn't. Um, so it, becomes down, it comes down to philosophy as to whether you want to let the courts evolve the Constitution okay. or whether you want to let the people do it through amendment. That's really the issue. That's what it comes down to, Mark. Well, what about, now this is Joe again, what about viability from a legal standpoint? Isn't viability on a case-by-case basis? One child might survive at X number of weeks and another child won't? Or is there a definitive legal definition of viability, Cliff? Well, that's a great question. That's a really, really great question. And, and I would say that it is not fully answered by the courts. Um, I think it depends upon the circumstances and, and the state you're in. So, for example, when you're dealing with, um, well, let's take it out, outside the abortion context. Let's take it, you know, in, in, within the family context. Um, the, the, most doctors try to use a bright line rule. You know, they normally look at the, at the period and they say, okay, <clears throat> you know, uh, the 42 <clears throat> or 40 or 39 divided by 3. And they define viability the way, you know, Roe does. And they say, they talk about the semesters and they say, um, by the, uh, by the end of the second trisemester, this, this, um, fetus is viable. Before that, um, in the second trisemester, it's, eh, you know, we don't know, right? So in some cases it will be, in some cases it won't be, as we, you know, as we make developments in the law. In, in the first trisemester, it's clearly not viable outside the womb. So the question then becomes, should the test be one of viability? Those who are anti-abortion say, no, it shouldn't be. I mean, in, in a matter of, if you don't do anything, except feed the mother in a matter of, of weeks, you know, a couple of months, this child is going to evolve into a child. This fetus is going to evolve into a child. So what's the difference if we're talking about why should we, why should we base uh, life, or the right to life anyway, on how many weeks it is? That's that argument. The other argument is no, it's, a, it's tissue. It's, a, it's an amalgam of tissue, and if it's not capable of living outside the womb, it's not a human being. So, uh, you know, I, so I think at the bottom line of all of this debate is a question you asked, which is, to me, is not fully resolved by the courts. Should government be involved in women's wombs, helping them decide these things or deciding whether they have the right to this or not? Or is this just a private moral decision and government should not be part of it? Well, so that's a philosophical question, philosophical, religious question. Everybody has their views on that. 
Um, but that's not really the legal question. I'm sorry. You know, the legal question is whether the whether the courts um, can find in the United States Constitution uh, an absolute um, ban on government restricting abortion. Um, can can the uh, that's really the question. Uh, can the courts find in that document, in that Constitution, in any kind of legitimate way, um, the right to say to, to the rest of the country, to the, the courts throughout the country, you know what, you, you must permit abortion. Um, it is an infringement of a woman's rights to prohibit abortion under this Constitution as written. That's really the question, whether it's right or wrong or moral or immoral, or if it's, you know, under this religious view or that religious view. You know, that's a whole other question. I'm happy to discuss my own personal philosophy with you, but that's a, that, that is a question that you should ask a, a minister, a rabbi, an imam, you know, you, or, or a sociologist or somebody else. I mean, obviously we all believe, I think we all believe to some degree, the, the right to, to freedom, to, to kind of do as you wish so long as you don't harm anyone else. But I think those people who oppose uh, abortion, they think it does harm someone else. It harms this, this uh, organ inside the woman that either is viable or is going to become viable under, in most circumstances. So I'm trying to stay away, Mark, deliberately from the sociological religious issues because I'm really trying to, to get people centered on what the legal issues are. Then you can go out and you can you know, choose what you want to choose in terms of your own you know, personal views about this kind of thing. Let's take but, the legal uh, issues uh, another step further down the line. Uh, if, if the child is not viable in terms of a legal definition, which you say isn't settled yet, uh, does society have any real vested interest in preserving that, or should we just let it go? Yeah, well, again, it depends on your, on your religious views. I'm, I'm looking at what the law prohibits or requires. And what I'm saying is that right now under Roe, the law says um, you know, what, that, that there is a right to abort the fetus. This woman has this right to abort this fetus until the third trimester. He has that right. We're going to give her that right. We recognize that under the Constitution as an associational right, uh, a, a right of some sort of freedom that we've invented. Um, that's what the courts have said thus far. If they change the law, then what they're saying is, well, you know what? We recognize that the fetus has, uh, has rights that we did not recognize previously, that this organism, this organ, this tissue that is capable of developing into a, into, into a viable um, baby, which it may not be you know, right now in the second trimester or the first trimester, we're going to protect that right of evolution. That's what, that's what the other folks say, and, and their opponents say that's absurd. You know, how's it different than any other tissue that's not capable of, of being a, a human being outside the human body? That's the, that's the legal debate, shall we say. Okay. What about a guardian ad litem? Suppose someone went to court and said, I want a guardian appointed for this unborn fetus because it is not going to become a tadpole. It's not going to become a frog or a dog. It's going to become a human being, and therefore it has rights. That's another great question. People have tried that, by the way. And the court said, no, 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 no. As long as Roe versus Wade is the law, as long as there's a right to, uh, to abort prior to viability, we are not going to set up a guardianship for a non-viable you know, chunk of tissue in this woman's body. That's what the courts have said thus far. You know, they just would see that as a way of getting around the, the Roe versus Wade.
All right. What about our faith in the court? We now have a court that's about to change something that was decided 50 years ago because the court's more conservative. You know, this idea that you can go to Commonwealth Court in Pennsylvania, they're conservative, but you can go to the state Supreme Court and they're more liberal. What about your reaction to this idea that our faith in courts is eroded when the courts change their decisions based on the direction of the wind? Well, the courts have answered that question, and they've said if a decision no longer has the force or impact of the law, then it should be changed. So, for example, at one time, segregation was okay, right? And then Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas, came along and said, wait a minute, we're going to throw out that precedent. That's ridiculous. At one time, the United States Supreme Court said that a, that a black person, and an African, was um, not a citizen, was not considered a human being, right, and uh, helped uh, fuel the Civil War. And the courts have since said, no, no, that was, that's insane. That's not the law. At one time, we put Japanese Americans in internment camps during World War II. And the courts have since said, no, you can't do that without due process. Those people were citizens, by the way, those Japanese Americans who were put into internment camps during World War II. So, you know, we've changed precedent. Um, it has to be, obviously, a you know, crucial matter, extraordinary, a matter of extraordinary importance. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's happened. Does that erode the face in the courts? Well, it happens infrequently enough that I don't think that alone is what erodes the face in the courts. I think what, what people are concerned about when it comes to the courts is um, the extent to which they can be manipulated by public opinion. I think most people um, feel that's not going to happen. Uh, but I think it's very difficult to, to impose that standard. Because judges are human beings. And, you know, they may want to go on uh, on higher courts, appellate courts, or in some states they have to run for election, like in Pennsylvania. So, you know, there's, there's no doubt that, uh, that judges are affected by you know, public sentiment, no matter how hard they may try not to. And most of them try not to, by the way. Most judges, you know, I'd say the great majority of judges are honorable people who really do want to kind of keep the balance in society. They realize that's their role. And they do, you know, most of them do a pretty good job doing that. But uh, there's no doubt that these, you know, these hot-button issues bring a lot of public pressure to bear. I mean, the whole idea of protesting outside judges' houses and trying to change their opinion by, by making them feel afraid or bringing you know, political or social pressure on them is, um, is a, you know, very disquieting and disrupting. You know, I worked for a federal judge myself in, in different places, in D.C. and here in, in uh, central Pennsylvania, who dealt with very high-profile cases. Uh, many of them, uh, Judge Sirica, John Sirica handled the Watergate case. I was in court with him every day. I saw that whole thing develop and evolve. I, I worked here for Judge Muir, Malcolm Muir, one of the longest serving judges in, in our nation's history. And, um, you know, they have extreme responsibilities. And one of the greatest responsibilities that most federal judges feel is the responsibility to, to be consistent, to be balanced. Um, and, and not to let the law become, you know, a, a political weapon or tool. But, boy, it's hard. You know, it's really hard for, the, for that uh, to happen or not happen. You'll remember, for example, that most of the Trump judges did not agree with him that the election was, uh, you know, was rigged. Judge Matthew Brand right here in Waysport, who was, uh, was uh, a Republican Obama nominee, okay, and he found that the Trump campaign did not bring a legitimate case for election fraud in Pennsylvania. So, I mean, judges try, try very, most of them try very, very hard to maintain a, an even keel. Cliff, you know, we're, we're almost out of time, but we've got to ask you one question from a legal standpoint. How devastating is the leak, and what should happen to the leaker? Oh, they, definitely the leaker should have his, his or her head cut off. 
<laughs> you know, I mean, okay. all kidding aside, I, I worked as a law clerk, you know, I, I and I thought that my absolute 1,000% fidelity was to that judge, and if I disagreed, I told the judge so. And I can tell you that I've worked for federal judges who I disagreed with. And I remember on more than one occasion um, saying to the judge, I can't draft this opinion for you. I just can't. I can't do it. And in all those cases, the judge said, "Okay, I'll do it." Or the other law, you know, one of his other law clerks would do it. Uh, I can tell you another case where I attempted to resign my position because I disagreed so fundamentally with the judge. I brought him a, a resignation note. Went to his house late at night in the wintertime with my resignation. He took my resignation and threw it into his fireplace. And he said, Cliff, you're not going anywhere. <laughs> he says, I, I like having you young liberals. He said, it makes me think. <laughs> but what about so, the know, leak? I couldn't even resign when I wanted to. <laughs> but I, I certainly would never, I can't even imagine going to the press or leaking a draft of an opinion. To me, that is, you know, that is, is such a, uh, uh, as we say in Hebrew, an avera. That's such a sin, you know, that a sin of biblical proportion to undermine a, a judge just because you happen to disagree with their legal point of view. You know, if you don't like it, you argue with them, you maybe refuse to do the work, you resign, but you don't expose them to ridicule and even potential physical threat because you happen not to agree with their judicial philosophy. I think that's really gross. And, uh, you know, whatever can legally be done to this person um, should be done. If they're a member of the bar, they should lose their law license. I mean, I think it's a very, it should be as severe a punishment as we reasonably could accomplish and still call ourselves a civilized society. All right. Well, that is going to be the word of the day. Hevera, a uh, sin in Hebrew. So, <laughs> Hevera, sin. That's a good biblical word. I got it. Hevera, it's it's the only, it may be the only Yiddish I know. So thank you, <laughs> thank you so much for checking in. Oh, really love your opinions. And yep. uh, stop by and visit us again. We love the more prolonged yeah, visits definitely. with more questions. Always, thank you, Always sir. glad to hear from you, Cliff. Take care. Be well. Stay safe. Stay you too. Thank you. Cliff Readers, a noted regional attorney, former President of Pennsylvania Trial Lawyers Association, of course, Williamsport lawyer, readers, Travis Humphrey, Waters and Dorman, uh, his uh, uh, law firm up there, uh, was nominated by President Clinton to be on the federal court, but at the time the Republicans weren't interested in uh, upping any uh, lawyers to the court, uh, had been nominated by the president, so that uh, died for lack of a second in the U.S. Senate.